Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. Hi, everybody. This is Ethan McTurn for the Road Home Podcast. Going to be recording another solo podcast today. Um, we'll have some great guests um, back on the show in the coming episodes. So hope you stay subscribed, um, unless you have better podcasts to to listen to. In which case, you're always free to unsubscribe. Um, but I did want to take some time to address the recent events so far in 2021 in the United States, um, especially around January 6th and the time after and the time leading up to the domestic terrorist attack on Washington. Um, Cause it's just such a, it's not really a formative moment, although obviously every moment we're forming or influencing a new future, but it really felt like a fruitional moment, uh, a kind of coming to the surface of something about the national or collective karma of the United States and, and perhaps in some larger ways the world. Certainly a coming to the surface of the collective karma of the Trump era, which I hesitate to um, give it that name, that it's called the Trump era, because he already has so much unearned fame. But it's really been an era that's been defined by uh, his rise to power, his bullhorn, his his, uh, massive and befuddling media platform uh, that maybe now is collapsing as social media and his Twitter account were locked and so forth uh, as he's on his way out of the so-called presidency, or at least on his way out of the White House. So yeah, I, I um, January 5th, was an interesting day because that was the last election here of the 2020 election cycle and uh, took place in Georgia. And I had done, you know, a fair amount, way less than other people, especially way less than grassroots organizers on the ground. But what energy I could give uh, to the 2020 election through Dharma vote and so forth went to primarily volunteering for Georgia. Um, it's just kind of the the state that I picked. I have a few friends there. Uh, I'm a fan of Atlanta hip hop. And so for all these reasons, I said, Georgia's my state. Also, there were not one, but two U.S. Senate elections there, in addition to it becoming a swing state in the presidential election. Uh, so after Joe Biden won the state of Georgia, which is a big swing in the direction of more democratic or perhaps even more progressive values. Um, 
And that was, you know, primarily because of the great work of people like Stacey Abrams uh, and others like her. Uh, you know, there was this runoff for the two Senate seats and the control of the Senate was still tenuously held by uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, who I refer to sometimes as Senator Palpatine. Uh, you guys who are uh, Star Wars, you folks who are Star Wars fans might get that reference. Uh, and uh, this was a chance, if, if the Democrats won both of these races, to take back control of the Senate with the slimmest possible margin uh, and stop Mitch McConnell's ability to obstruct all of this legislation, uh, you know, some of which would have an immediate, immediate impact on people's lives in the COVID pandemic. Uh, and it felt very 50-50, felt sort of like a long shot. Uh, Democrats and progressives don't typically do very well in runoff elections uh, because of lower turnout. Um, but something felt different this year because of so much organizing and perhaps um, perhaps the Trump era has made people feel like they have to stay politically engaged to be compassionate in, in a democracy. And so not both races were called the night of January 5th, but the, the experts I follow on Twitter, and I'll admit that the night of January 5th, I spent too much time on Twitter. They basically called both of the races uh, before uh, I finally retired to bed on the night of Tuesday, January 5th. And I had a lot of agitated, happy energy in my body, feeling a lot of potency that in the state of Georgia, no less, uh, a black pastor and a young Jewish man, both of whom had worked with civil rights legend John Lewis, um, and both of whom are fairly progressive, even by the Democratic Party's standards, had just both become senators from the state of Georgia. And that's a real feeling of um, maybe good leaders who acknowledge the truth of interdependence can actually rise up anywhere. So it was agitated, nervous, uh, too much screen time sort of a feeling. You may know that feeling through the COVID pandemic, but uh, it was positive feeling in the end. And woke up and went about work on Wednesday. And uh, the news that the Capitol Police were being overwhelmed by an angry and armed uh, mob of Trump supporting white supremacists. I don't really feel like mincing words. Uh, so I'm not going to say by like confused people, I'm not going to say things like by freedom loving Americans, because uh, it's very clearly that that's not the case. And I don't think I would be doing any service to reality. Uh, by sort of mincing words. So a mob of armed white supremacists was overwhelming the Capitol Police, which was confusing because you'd think that the U.S. Capitol was a fairly fortified uh, area uh, and well protected on this date where the uh, final votes of the Electoral College, this archaic system that we use uh, in the states to determine the presidency, which is how Donald Trump could become president in 2016, even losing by almost 3 million votes, which is a lot of votes, by the way, 
Um, so he's never had the support of a majority of this country, and that's that feels very important. But while the uh, Congress was certifying the electoral college votes, that the Capitol Police were overwhelmed by this armed white supremacist mob. Uh, and as many of us, and maybe you, just as I was started following the news, I couldn't believe what was happening. And there seemed to be things on Twitter and online that perhaps not all, uh, but a few of the police force and officers were actually uh, either allowing or helping the mob get further into the Capitol facility. Uh, and the stories on that day, you know, ranged from uh, a feeling of disbelief that maybe this was just a, a rowdy cosplay demonstration. You all may have seen the picture of the um, uh, man in uh, face paint with no shirt on, with a kind of Viking helmet on, um, who kind of looked as he was wandering the halls of the Capitol, like maybe he had gotten lost on the way to a football game. Um, uh, but there were deaths and the stories that began to emerge in the days after, um, became increasingly troubling, uh, about just how violent things were, how close it was to, uh, uh, assassinations of members of Congress, uh, how the crowd was even screaming, uh, to hang Mike Pence and erected, had time to erect an actual gallows, the very handmaid's tale, uh, outside of the Capitol, which is amazing that they had the time to do it. And, um, you know, more and more stories started to come through in more recent days, the idea that, uh, some of the, uh, planners of the mob were actually shown schematics and shown around the Capitol facility, perhaps by the staffs of or by Republican Congress people, which is incredibly um, disconcerting, right? So this sort of thing hasn't happened in the United States since the War of 1812. Uh, even in the Civil War, the Confederacy never got near the Capitol. So this is this is a complete invasion, um, and a you know treasonous invasion. Not that I'm particularly a person who believes in punitive justice, but um, still, that is that is the name uh, for what happened. And then, you know, even more disturbing stories came out, like they knew exactly where Nancy Pelosi's office was. Uh, Ayanna Presley, who's a wonderful congresswoman from Boston, uh, barricaded herself with her staff in her office and the panic buttons that are in uh, all um, uh, congressional offices, the panel had apparently been ripped out of the wall uh, before uh, the day had begun so that when they went to press the panic bu button, it was gone. So clearly there were a lot of elements of thinking that at least partially this was an inside job. And then just the, the, Gosh, the, the, the difference between that and some of the summer nonviolent protests uh, for Black Lives Matter, the difference in treatment, the police, you know, here in New York City during some of the June protests 
driving into crowds of people um, with a reckless abandon and impunity versus the, the video of this mob of white supremacists leaving the Capitol and just kind of walking down the steps, even one or two people being helped down the steps by uh, some Capitol police officers. Um, It's just very, very stark and very brutal Uh, and, and not the kind of thing that you can see. And this is really where the Dharma starts to come in. And I think our reading of some classic Buddhist or yogic ways of dealing with a world in turmoil need to evolve and need to get a lot more precise quite quickly. Because it's not the kind of situation where there's two sides, or at least two empathetic sides to the story, which is the way us Buddhists and yogis like to tell the story, that we, we see the suffering and confusion of all beings, which is true, which is, which is important. But there's really not um, two sides, two ways to tell this story without, without either being deranged or uh, manipulative and malicious. Um, so there's a real question of like, how, how does the rhetoric and understanding and worldview of Buddhism, uh, uh, have to kind of evolve and maybe not evolve, but just get more precise in which aspects of the teachings we are centering and bringing to the forefront, um, in order to deal with white supremacist fascism. Um, you know, there's, there's various ways that the teachings are used and, and before, um, the political suffering and strife of this country became so acute would often be used to sort of what I like to call hover above the world, right? To be, to be people in the world, but often pretending that we are not part of the world, right? And that, that's a big theme in um, a lot of the first generation of these Buddhist and yogic teachings coming to the West is this quality of spiritual bypassing, this quality of trying to make oneself in the world, but not of it. And that's one of my favorite quotes of all time from uh, Sri Stevie Wonder uh, in one of my favorite songs of all time, the song called As, where he says, Make sure when you say you're in it, but not of it, you're not helping to turn this into the place sometimes called hell. And I really do believe that the parts of ourselves that try to say that we're in it, but not of it with this world right now are contributing to the hellishness of it. So two ways that that often happens, two kind of basic structures that I um, hear again and again. The first is, you know, a sense of like, what do you do? What do you do about white supremacist fascism? What do you do about the depths in which this is embedded, uh, you know, maybe most deeply into American society, but also other, other countries as well, and how much that's coming to the surface? How do you confront it? How do you work with it? How do you face it? How do you transform it? And so one of the answers that doesn't work, this spiritual bypass or hover above the world answers is, this is just samsara, you know, 
this is the realm of confusion, right? So um, this is the realm of confusion. What do you expect? It's always been like this. It will always be like this. Um, why are you so surprised that there is suffering and confusion in the world? So a way to not, that's a way to like not really address how to be awake uh, with the very specific nature of the current circumstances. Um, and the other one, uh, which I think maybe has at least been problematized or almost made fun of a little bit more now, and I think in some ways it's not so great um, to um, make fun of this because the intention can be very good and it is something that we all want to keep in mind. But the notion of love and unity and um, keeping in our hearts even those that we believe cause harm or suffering. Um, you know, and I think this one, sometimes it gets uh, transmitted in very vague, very syrupy, saccharine, love and light um, terms. But a, a friend of mine who is a very smart person on uh, Twitter kind of elaborated the best part of love and unity, but I still think it partially misses the point. Um, my friend Oliver, who's a Buddhist and a journalist on Twitter, uh, said that, I'm going to paraphrase it because I lost the note, but basically said, to not dehumanize those who dehumanize others, that is the whole challenge. And it's a, it's a really beautiful statement. And there's only one part of the statement that I um, take exception to, which is the notion that that is the whole challenge. Right? I think it is a challenge to not dehumanize. Uh, for me, it's a challenge to not dehumanize Donald Trump or Jared Kushner uh, or the guy in his Viking hat looking like the most obtusely privileged person in the world, who later was reported when he was in custody, um, wouldn't eat in prison because they wouldn't serve him only organic food, right? So to not dehumanize them is, is definitely a challenge, and it's definitely a practice, and the various meditations that I've learned, and maybe you've learned, loving kindness or Tonglen, uh, help us, perhaps, with that challenge. But I don't think it's the whole challenge, and I also don't think it's the main challenge. You know, how do we create more love and unity? How do we keep in our hearts those who have power and privilege and cause harm? I would argue that that's a secondary challenge. And for the foreseeable future, for mindfulness practitioners, I'm going to say something that runs against what a lot of the Buddhist teachers I've heard in my life focus on. Uh, we should only work on that challenge after we've um, made sure that we are practicing compassion actively for the people who are getting dehumanized, right? So there's, there's a big missing step there to make those who dehumanize or those who we disagree with the main um, recipient of our compassion, right? Those who get dehumanized are the ones who are marginalized, they're harmed, they're oppressed, and we should try at least to um, work for their benefit first, right? Because 
those who dehumanize others usually have more power. They're actually going to be okay. They don't actually need our compassion first. And also in those statements, there's often some assumption that if we focus our compassion on the powerful who dehumanize others, um, that somehow that will actually wake them up. Yet nobody really has any examples, <laughs> at least not right now, of the member of the white supremacist mob who said, oh, I've been awoken by your compassion. It's actually the only ones who've apologized are the ones who got caught and got held to some sort of consequence and account for their actions. Uh, so the notion of a, a structure where we are actually holding ourselves and holding others accountable uh, is really important. You know, I... Um, I think about this in terms of the, the example of the teacher and the playground bully, right? In terms of getting at this sort of, all of these sort of confused uh, elements, the this is just some sorrow, what do you expect? The love and light and unity. And then the third one, which I think our media too often engages in, and, and therefore we too often engage in, in the way we storytell, which is both sides do this. Right to equate, and you can see that many try to manipulate this and try to equate, for example, um, Black Lives Matter with a white supremacist armed mob, right? And uh, having been to a few Black Lives Matter protests this summer, I can say without a doubt that is not uh, a good equation, you know, Whoever is making that both sides statement is is not paying attention, or more likely, is consciously manipulated, and manipulating our desire for equality and fairness. So we come to see two things that aren't equal as equal. And there's no part about mindfulness that says you should equate things that are not actually the same, right? There's no part about mindfulness that says a mouse is the same as an elephant. That's just not paying attention. You could say they're both sentient beings, sure. But if you want to protect the mouse, you have to make sure the elephant's not going to stomp on it, right? So let's take this as the example of the, the teacher and the playground bully, right? And let's say a playground bully grows increasingly uh, emboldened because there's no consequences. And let's also say that the playground bully learns all of these arguments and learns how to um, manipulate the teacher by using them at the right moment. You know, first to say something like, well, what do you expect? Of course I punched him in the face. We're all suffering. You know, or when the teacher says, you know, you're going to be punished for this, uh, the bully says, well, well, that's too divisive. That's a very interesting one that I hear both in kind of radical right-wing rhetoric that's also kind of mimicked in the uncomfortable spiritual community sometimes that pointing out that somebody got punched in the face repeatedly is somehow adding to the division, right? And it's not divisive to call out uh, harm being caused, right? We, wa we do want to call out harm being caused without... Um, dehumanizing, 
but just pointing out, hey, there's this messed up thing going on. Kids are getting punched in the face on the playground. Uh, that's not divisive. But let's say the playground bully knows how to push the teacher's buttons and, and make the teacher question like, hey, am I really, uh, am I really right here? Did that kid really punch that other kid in the face? You know, and so there's a lot of feelings about like, hey, maybe the left wing is the same as the right wing. Maybe Antifa, which by the way stands for anti-fascist, <laughs> so the opposite of Antifa would be fascist. Maybe Antifa is the same as an armed white supremacist with um, military gear and um, AK-47s and, and so forth. Right. So what, what does the teacher do? I don't think the teacher talks about love and light. Perhaps the teacher needs to keep generating compassion for the bully keep seeing the potential for awakening for the bully. Um, I think that's actually an incredibly important part of uh, compassionate leadership, but that does not mean that it, that the teacher puts that burden of compassion onto the kids who are getting punched in the face, right? You just say, I need to get this to stop. We need to create a, a situation or a system where this doesn't happen anymore. And some of that is short-term, which means stopping the bully, and some of that is long-term, which is actually addressing how the harm happened, right? How, how could we shift these structures where there is so much dehumanization, where there is so much greed and aggression, etc., right? But the teacher doesn't say, well, both sides are at fault, so we just all need to love each other more. The bully can't wait to hear that, you know? I think Ted Cruz or Josh Howley or Donald Trump would love the interpretations of Buddhism and yoga that say, let's just love everybody because uh, they're ready to weaponize that rhetoric. These people are incredibly good at weaponizing well-intended rhetoric against people to make them feel guilty, right? To make us feel like calling out injustice is somehow a loss of our spiritual values to think, well, maybe I am being divisive, you know, and that's to me as somebody, I guess, who's developed a bit of a reputation, though I think it's kind of laughable that I'm one of the people who more has this reputation of being like a politically engaged uh, Buddhist practitioner and thinker, um, you know, I often second guess myself when somebody posts um, on social media a response to something I write, saying like, you know, th this is this is too mean, or this is divisive, or you're you're minimizing those you disagree with. You know, th there's often that feeling of like, oh shit, did did I did I just say something wrong? Am I, are they right that I'm, I'm being a jerk or an asshole right now? And I think we all do have to consider right speech and skillfulness and effectiveness of, of how we're trying to go about um, getting the bully to stop punching kids in the face and 
creating a more just environment where that doesn't happen in the future. Uh, but there's a lot of ways that the rhetoric of being a good, and I put that in quotes, spiritual person is waiting to be weaponized and is understood and ready to be manipulated by those who want to use it against us. And terms like divisive, um, you know, or biased, these are, these are readily available um, to people who actually just want to support the guy punching people in the face as a way to keep being able to have that power um, and the privilege that comes with that power. And so if we really want a view of compassion and interdependence to arise, I was really moved recently um, watching the Instagram live video that uh, Representative uh, Congresswoman uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who I really do think, I know she's something of a divisive figure, but it's hard not to think that a lot of that is just because she's a woman of color and she speaks confidently about her perspective, um, she gave this Instagram Live kind of spontaneous uh, speech for an hour uh, the other night. And one talked about how, how close it was. And I don't think the media really got to how close it was, but she couldn't give all the details for security reasons, but how close it was to members of Congress being assassinated. Right. Which I think we would if that had happened, if, say, 10 or five members of Congress had been killed, I think we would be having very, very different conversations right now. Um, and it would be even harder to come up with any sense of both sides or let's wait and see. Um, and so she really shared how scared she was that day. You know, she's a, I think she's 30 years old. So she really shared how it was very dharmic in a way. The moment that you realize you might be close to your own death. And she really thought for a little bit that she was there. I know that's a, an experience a lot of people have had. People who've just even had moderate cases of COVID this year. Uh, friends of mine, uh, secondary acquaintances have reported poignantly on a day or two that they actually thought, oh, I might die here. You know, this, this might not get better if this goes one step further downhill. Uh, I'm done. Um, and so it's a very poignant moment. And I think us having from the events of 2020 and 2021, a closeness with death Perhaps, perhaps it'll just traumatize us collectively and individually, but perhaps also it will give us more of a sense of the preciousness of human life and a desire, again, to create policies and systems and relationships and just in our own being, take that preciousness to heart and put it more and more at the forefront of the choices that we make. Um, but, you know, I really believed her. Uh, that she had one of these moments and that that assassinations were just a few seconds uh, away, a few seconds of protection, a few seconds of quick thinking away. You know, and in this, she really said there's only one way forward, which is a multiracial democracy. 
right? That, that whiteness is a myth, which if you're a white person like me, and probably if you make it through my podcast, my guess is you're, um, you know, uh, uh, a fairly liberal, although that word is challenging, fairly progressive thinking, political thinking, uh, person, uh, you know, maybe you don't really want to consciously, uh, obey the centering of, of whiteness. But, um, if we are comfortable in this world and we've achieved certain advantages that are, and in my case also because I'm male and, straight and cisgendered, if we've achieved certain uh, advantages in this world, then there is a comfort that demonstrates that this myth, even if we don't consciously or intellectually believe it, does live in us. And, you know, and she talked about the people who really are scared of letting that myth go and want to hold on and this is, you know, the white supremacists, the, the people who really want make America the way it was when nobody questioned white people's authority. Um, that's what uh, MAGA means, right? I think we know that. And the mythology leads these people to really say, um, screw it, if we can't have that, you know, we're going to burn it all down. And AOC links, and it's the first time I've heard a politician directly make this philosophical link, um, white supremacy with um, nihilism or nihilism, depending on how you pronounce that word, with the philosophy of nothingness of dead-endness, right, which is the exact opposite of the notion of interdependence, the notion of a living universe of sentient beings who, yes, are suffering, but actually um, can awaken, can transform suffering, which is the Buddhist view. The Buddhist view is not just we're stuck in samsara, it's never getting better. It's actually this is interdependent and we can awaken we can actually make things better. We can make things more compassionate, even if it's just in this little corner of the universe and other corners of the universe are still um, locked in confusion. At any point, sentient beings can embark on a path of awakening by seeing what matters and beginning to take an interest in how the mind works and how suffering works and how suffering can be alleviated. So, so white supremacy is nihilism. And she said, these people really, if they can't have a white society or a white dominant society, really are willing to rule over a pile of ash. And this becomes really apparent to me uh, that this is the view because you, you never hear, <laughs> you never hear these folks and you, you never hear Donald Trump uh, and you never hear uh, really a conservative politician, I have to say, talk about what they want the world to look like 50 years from now, you know, in a way that says, and here's how we'll all be included in that. Right? It's, 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 it feels like a very dead-end philosophy, 
It feels cynical. It feels nihilistic. And nihilism is not, is not awake. That's one of the classic Buddhist views. Buddhism actually went to town, ancient Buddhist philosophers, arguing with nihilists. And some of them were materialists. Some of them were just cynical nihilists. But they, Buddhist philosophers went to town explaining why that is not a sustainable view of oneself or the world or the universe. So, I don't believe that every Buddhist or yogi has to have the exact same policy position, right? I, I think there's a lot of really interesting, respectful discussion that can happen around like, well, here's how I feel about this issue. Well, here's how I, f I feel about this issue. And, and here's why my values inform me that way. And, but I also think that having these discussions is part of being an engaged modern practitioner of mindfulness or any of these wellness systems. You have to want to engage in these discussions wholeheartedly. And that's why I've really rejected, I felt a lot of pressure, I've said this before, to um, sort of the idea is that a Buddhist teacher or thinker does not kind of get too deep into the weeds of um, politics because that can be divisive, right? And I really rejected that view that actually what my job was, and I hope other people who teach these things kind of think about this view, and, and you don't have to do it exactly the way I do it, but think about what our job is. And what I came to the conclusion is that my job was actually to model sharing my political views and always trying to link them to the philosophical, psychological, and spiritual views of, as I was doing these practices, what I understood the view of these practices to be. And that doesn't mean everybody has to agree with me, but it, within that trans, transparency of modeling my views and trying to link my political views with my spiritual views, there could, that would be the real way to teach to teach how another person could say, oh, I see, well, I have these spiritual beliefs and those lead me when I apply them, when I really contemplate and try it out and see and think it through, that leads me to this policy view. Here's what I think a Buddhist should do about this or that. And that's what I think is important, that we are all actually engaging in some relationship between our spiritual practice and who we are in the world and what, what we want the world to be. Because the other option is to spiritually bypass, which classic Buddhism often calls eternalism as this sort of transcendence of the relative truth or real world issues. Or our other option is to be nihilists, to be cynical, materialistic, short-sighted, burn it all down, who cares what happens um, after I'm gone, because nothing really matters. And nihilism has really, really taken over the world that we live in, and sometimes I think eternalism or spiritual bypassing has taken over big swaths of the Buddhist and yoga worlds. So anyway... These are some of my thoughts about the recent events in the United States. 
Uh, I'm really hoping that uh, everybody can be safe and get the protection from the pandemic and that the vulnerable people in your life get that protection as soon as possible um, and that we are uh, individually and collectively on something of a path of healing. But that path of healing uh, involves getting realer, not uh, pretending that reality doesn't exist. So I'll have a few more interview podcasts coming up. I hope you can tune back in for those. And otherwise, for the Road Home Podcast, this is Ethan Nickturn. Thank you so much for for listening. Um, Please do feel free to contact me via ethannickturn.com. And uh, may all be safe. Bye-bye.